Hello, everyone, and welcome back to part two, discussing the meaning of life, justice, and all sorts of other themes with Kieran Setia, professor of philosophy at MIT, who's kindly joining us today on the show. I'm Jake. Jake, how does it feel to be bumped down from the second smartest person in this podcast to the third? Oh, man, <laughs> don't, don't make me deeply insecure. Uh, yeah, sorry, what did you say? <laughs> now who's the third smart? <laughs> I really need coffee today. I'm trying to like reduce my caffeine intake. Welcome everybody. Obviously, Morality of Everyday Things. What's your name? Podcast. Uh, we're going to keep this one short because we're in the middle of our uh, session, but it will be a follow-on from last one. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode, please do listen to it. It's an introduction to Kieran and his work most recently and a little bit before that. And we'll be following on and discussing justice. If you enjoy the show, please do like it. You can also set that. I think there's a little like bell icon on Spotify. So you can be notified yeah. when new, um, new episodes come out. Hit follow. Hit that follow. Give us that review. Give me that sweet, sweet dopamine hit. <laughs> Every time we get a review. It's what yeah. keeps us going. This is the real meaning in life. There's, I mean, my mom's already written 125 reviews. I can't get her to write one. <laughs> 125 different accounts. It's worth it. It's worth Wait, it. You know, Spotify bill is really racking up. <laughs> anyway, um, intro aside, Kieran, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. Uh, it's good to be back. Thanks. So in the previous episode, we went deep into the question of the meaning of life. We started looking at absurdity, went down the track of the meaning of life, sort of capital M, capital L, talking about sort of human mm. humanity's place in the Versus cosmos, as well own. as as well as the sort of value of individual life and talking about happiness and, and other yep. themes. Didn't Hardship, we? friendship, all types of ships. <laughs> all, all the ships. And obviously before that, we gave an introduction to Kieran's work and we were looking at his most recent work, Life is Hard, which focuses on human life and living a good life through the lens of suffering and adversity. Following on from the question about the meaning of life itself, I hope I'm not misrepresenting your work here, but I remember when I, I got to the conclusion of the episode on justice and, and meaning. Chapter, you mean? Sorry, the, yes, the chapter. So it, it should be clarified of one of, as a reminder, one of the seven chapters, seven types of suffering or pain. One of them is injustice. Absolutely. And I remember getting to the conclusion, I felt that you really picked out sort of fighting injustice or, or fighting for justice. You really elevated that as something particularly worthy of meaning in one's life. And I wanted to talk about that, but I suppose before we properly do, as we always say on the podcast, it's great to give definitions of things before you get too deep into the discussion. Could you define injustice for us and then and then maybe start sort of talking about why you think that has significance, if I'm representing your views fairly? Then? Yeah. So I am going to be the difficult philosopher here and say, in response to the question about defining injustice, I don't know how to define it. And one of the things Episode I over. think about injustice <laughs> is that we're much better at recognizing injustice than we are at coming up with a unified theory about it. This is a case where I think the philosophical quest for a unified theory is intellectually interesting, but politically not as urgent as it might seem. So I think, you know, you think about the dispossession and killing of indigenous people or, you know, chattel slavery or Jim Crow laws in the US or police brutality or voter suppression. We don't need an elaborate theory to recognize injustice and oppression in society around us. And so I, I think of the starting point really as particular concrete instances of injustice that we're confronted with. You know, the important thing is we don't have to have a, a philosophical theory of injustice, let alone a kind of ideal utopian picture of justice in order to respond to them. Okay, well, without giving it a definition, just one thing that kind of came to mind for me there. Would you say that all injustice is similar in nature. There is some, even if it's hard to define, universal thread there. Or is it more, are, can there, are, are there different brands or flavors? Is there is there injustice light? Is there uh, Pepsi <laughs> justice? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> justice cherry flavor. <laughs> if you shift from thinking about social justice to thinking about wronging an individual person, so treating mm -hmm. some individual unjustly, I would think in, in a sense- That is the exact economic approach to answering a question. Yeah, Let's make it a model uh, with just two people. <laughs> micro, <laughs> micro, yeah, micro. <laughs> for simplicity, suppose there are only two people. The, the, there, I would think, in a sense, there might be a common thread, which is that injustice involves rights, mm -hmm. involves the infringement of rights. On the other hand, we might have a great diversity of rights so that although you could say something true about treating someone unjustly by saying you're in some way infringing their rights, it wouldn't really be giving a unified picture because we might have rights to you know, certain kinds of bodily integrity and certain kinds of autonomy in our decision making and certain kinds of- And my rights can conflict with your rights. Right, exactly. So I, I think the answer is there may be a kind of common core, but I don't think the common core is going to be that illuminating of what the different kinds of injustice have in common. So I'd be more inclined to emphasize the diversity of injustice and, and wrong treatment. Is there perhaps a risk here by making it too subjective that you, I like to think I agree with you when you say that you recognize it when you see it, because I imagine, I like to imagine we'd, we'd probably have similar perspectives on that, but is there a risk that by, by sort of not defining it or making it sort of open subjectivity that not only can you have sort of different forms of rights conflicting with each other, but you can have different opinions on whether they're even conflicting at all. So when you make something everything, it's nothing. I mean, that's a good point that I don't think that... So let me take back the suggestion in You Know It When You See It, that there isn't also scope for argument. But I suspect that the arguments will take the form not of giving a general characterization of justice and injustice, where you say, here's my formula, does it fit the formula? The arguments will be more local. So if we're talking about, I don't know, police brutality, we might argue, okay, what is actually going on here? Does it have to do with economic disparity, racial disparity? What's the history of this? It, we, we could discuss what exactly the injustice is. So it's not that we're sort of inarticulate and we just have to say, I see it's unjust, you don't, end of story. But I, I doubt that those kinds of arguments, when they're really productive, go back to first principles, as it were, and say, Ah, uh, yes, I will now take my platonic definition of justice and apply it to the case. Because I, I don't think we have that, and I don't think we need to have that in order to have those kinds of arguments. But I think you're right to emphasize that that this isn't a matter of, sort of gut reaction. It is rationally debatable. It also sounds like it's not just that it's rationally debatable and that people can discuss it. I mean, you immediately gave a few examples in the one example you you had to mind the police brutality one and you gave a few kind of justice arguments and you, you said like i don't sit down and have a formula but you might have some number of i think principles is is probably more a better way of describing it than formula because it's less prescriptive but you might have some principles and you may have the assumption that oh between us we do agree that these are principles that are important to justice so it's not as fuzzy as wow well, you know it's just we see something we decide it, mm. it and it's not as clear as like, okay, there is a written formula that we can check it against. But there are a bunch of general principles that we agree fit in the set of things that describe justice. Does that sound fair to you, Kieran? Yeah. And then if we don't, like if we're trying to have an argument and we get to a point of articulating some local principle and we say, well, hold on, I don't agree with that. Then we can say, okay, now we have, now we've been pushed to step back and we've reached a point where we don't seem to agree on a premise yeah and that now we can get more theoretical but i i think theory should come bottom up as it were from the pressure of political argument rather than an antecedent commitment to to some single formula so what would some of those principles roughly uh be i mean non-exhaustive list just some examples an easy one off the top of my head would be don't physically harm people well that's more of a rule but 
part of justice is avoiding unnecessary harm to people. You mentioned bodily autonomy earlier. That's perhaps an example. Treating people unfairly or discrimination seems like a kind of, in general, a kind of injustice. Details to be determined or causing harm to others for our own benefit seems a paradigmatic form of unjust treatment or limiting people's autonomy in cases where they have a right to make their own decisions. That's another kind of paradigm of injustice. But in all of these cases, I think you know the application of those principles to particular cases would take judgment. They're not sort of, you can't do it algorithmically. So, I mean, in the book, you talk about injustice, and I suppose you do have this sort of micro and macro levels. Zooming out onto the sort of macro level for a second, to be fair, you've already given some examples of voter suppression, police brutality, but are there, are there any sort of issues of injustice that you think are of primary concern for us as a species right now? What's bothering you? Yeah, well, so for me, that overarching that trivial kind of focus of anxiety. <laughs> What's up, man? Many things, many things keep me up at night, but I suppose the one that captures a lot of them is climate justice. And actually, I think framing it as an issue of justice is helpful because at the core of the climate crisis is not just bad consequences for us now and in the future, but causing harm for our own benefit. So that the climate crisis has predominantly been caused by people in, in the West and in Europe and to some extent in China now. And the bad effects are going to primarily, most ex- intensely affect people in Africa and in Asia. Interesting. If that's your concern, why, I, whilst I agree that climate crisis is a problem, I kind of think of it more as a coordination problem rather than a justice problem. Because whilst that is true, much more pressing for those people, you know, a lot of people in those circumstances can't access clean water, can't access food. And those are, you know, in a context where most of most of us, most people listening to this podcast live fairly abundant lives. That's um, the example of injustice I'd have probably picked at my beginning uh, as my first one. Climate, like I said, largely feels like a coordination problem that like we just can't agree as a globe how do we align incentives for everyone because instead it's like, well, it doesn't make sense for people to stop using energy and it, yeah, it disproportionately impacts people who are in vulnerable positions, but those people are already disadvantaged unfairly. I think if you're talking from the position of fairness, so that's where it resonates right because if you're saying that it's it's sort of people's use of supplies in a part of the world that's not affected affecting people who use re- use the supplies sort of relatively less right as it as in no, it's, I get, it's, I get it's it. my it's my it's kind just, of impact on you that's an externality that's so yeah the point i'm making is just that it's funny to highlight inequality as the source of your problem with climate change i agree but i think there are more pressing examples of inequality that we should be remedying around like i said access to clean water access to food because like are they the, are the, they as directly caused by as in, are they are they as directly caused by? No, they're not caused by. They're just this, it's more that we don't do anything to fix them. But no, so I think that's an important contrast, though. So I was thinking, uh, it's not an issue of inequality in the case of climate change. It's an issue of directly causing harm. So you know, a, a kind of characteristic philosophical view. If you're not a utilitarian who thinks we should just make things better, you think we have some reason to make things better for other people. But there's a much more stringent duty not to actively harm other people. And if you think of the climate crisis under the first heading, it's going to seem less urgent and to have a different shape than if you think, well, it's not just that there are people who are worse off. Could we help them? It's that no, we are actively responsible for causing harm. I mean, the other way in which I would say the climate crisis is special as a kind of contingent matter, just how things are playing out, is that I think the progress on any of the other aspects of injustice that we might care about here. So we might have an independent concern about fairness and equality, for instance. I think progress on those things is going to depend so much on how we manage to cope with or to the extent that we manage to cope with the climate crisis. So there's a way in which it's sort of fundamental causally there. Yeah, it's it's funny how like on the one hand, like the climate crisis doesn't matter to people who don't have water now. 
But on the other hand, if we don't fix the climate crisis, then, you know, it's going to matter to everyone for sure pretty soon. Right. It's going to exacerbate all of those problems so that it's a, a case where we can try to treat that what's not just a symptom of the climate crisis, but is also a symptom of the climate crisis. But actually, unless we address the cause, those symptoms are going to be exacerbated. And, and so it, it has a, a kind of central role there, I think. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's a funny question then. So what if everyone's like, fine, you know, assuming that we're fairly confident there aren't going to be runaway problems with the climate crisis. Uh, if rich nations said, fine, we're going to spend the money and we'll distribute some wealth to other people and we'll allow people in the most affected places to just immigrate to the wealthier nations that aren't as impacted. Would that be fine? Would that be resolved morally? That is a hideously impractical question and suggestion. But. I might need some more details of this uh, policy proposal. I mean, is the idea that we do this, but we don't mitigate climate change, so we just sort of allow part of the world to be immolated, but then hope to get out of it? It's not really how climate change works anyway, right? It's negative all over. Yeah, and it's also true that like, the, in terms of food security, like it's, the world is too global and interdependent to, as it were, say, hey, my plan is to write off this continent or, you know, and, and, and just live, live in the rest of the world. I think that's not, as a kind of adaptation solution, is not, not really going to work. It was a silly question. Let's yeah. reference I was, Musk again and say, let's just move to another yeah. planet. I was just, I was just trying to, right, trying to the, exactly. find some, yeah. some tenuous way of phrasing, like, okay, if, if the problem is that you're causing harm to someone else, what if you can rectify the harm? the harm? Can you then keep doing the thing? I mean, I, th I think you're right that in principle, if we thought there's a special urgency to not causing harm, and then there's this other issue of how to sustain a more a livable future for as many people as possible. And the first thing is especially urgent. And the second thing also matters. That could have policy implications. I'm not exactly sure what they are, but I think you're right to say, hold on, if it's right that this case is the case of climate, the climate crisis is morally distinctive because it involves actively causing harm, not just addressing inequality. How does that matter for policy? The answer is it might. And it, I mean, it should. Okay. That was a good answer to um, biggest one addressing the species. In your discussion on the climate crisis, one of the things you talked about was your own sort of engagement with activism and, and how you were sort of part of this MIT sit-in to sort of tackle divestment. I just wanted to link that with something else you say in the book about justice, which is that even when you can't control things, sometimes it's important just to rail against them. <laughs> anyway, I'm shaking yeah. my fist. <laughs> Listeners won't pick that up. Yeah. But um, how does sort of your experience of that square with your view there? Well, actually, I mean, did you did you have any success yet with the MIT program? Well, I should say that I, it was primarily, there was a student group that was really doing the work. And, and when they managed to get MIT to set up its first climate action plan, which was good. They didn't persuade MIT to divest from fossil fuels, which was bad and complicated because MIT's own internal committee had proposed doing that. So I think there was limited but genuine success, genuine progress. And I think that's sort of paradigmatic of how these things go is that you, you achieve some things, you don't achieve everything. I think that's a case where it illustrates two things. One is I think the value of collective action at all scales, that when we look at the climate crisis, often you look at the global climate crisis and think, I, what can I do to affect this? But there's lots of small collectives that we're part of where we might be able to make a difference on a smaller scale. And that large scale change is often kind of emergent from those many, many smaller scale changes. Also, I think collective action makes you feel less despairing. I mean, I think actually 
working with other people, having that kind of community is a, a good way to counteract climate despair. But as you said, I also think that there's nothing wrong with railing against aspects of, of injustice or suffering in our lives or other people's lives that we can't control. Sometimes that's just about recognizing the grim reality for what it is. Following question. Uh, I'll tell you a bit about a study in a second. Are people, when you're thinking about justice, if you are well-intentioned but end up having negative consequences, um, is that just or unjust? I think it would depend on, might depend on the details of the case. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of dispute in moral philosophy about what gets called the dis disagreements between objectivists and subjectivists about moral obligation that's precisely about whether what you're obligated to do is what, in light of your information, it seems to make sense to do with respect to other people, or whether what you're morally obligated to do is what would, in fact, respect other people's rights, whether you know it or not. And I tend to think that the in terms of practical deliberation, what we need is a concept of moral obligation that is properly responsive to our limited information. But it's still true that if you act on that limited information, you might end up unwittingly infringing someone's rights. And then there'll be questions of compensation and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those ones where it's like, it's hard to, to, to really spell out clearly to like an academic level, but practically it's like, uh, you need to be like reasonably well-informed. And generally, if you mean to do the right thing, it's not wrong, but it kind of depends on how like reasonably informed you were. I say this because uh, there was an interesting Yale study on divestiture from uh, fossil fuel companies. And it was basically a study on how ESG is largely as a category, kind of not looking at the climate problem or, or the problem of fossil fuel emissions correctly, because most companies that are green just fundamentally don't make or move physical objects in the real world or provide energy. And those are fossil fuel intensive things. And no one disputes that we still need those things. One of the outcomes of the study was like, oh, actually increasing the cost of capital for fossil fuel companies means that they have a shorter term horizon that they need to think about profits over because they can't make as much money, they can't raise as much capital. Um, so they actually tend to like increase fossil fuel emissions. And the other thing is that like, well, there's nothing we can do to get these people's money. So let's not bother trying to appease them. The most effective tends to, and the other thing is that a lot of green money just ends up going to like Spotify and Facebook who are like, they're not actually doing anything to improve fossil fuels, they, uh, emissions. They just don't by nature of their service have large emissions. On paper, it's like, wow, this company has tiny emissions. It's like, well, yes, it's because they, they don't do a thing that emits. It was one of those ones where it's it's super interesting economic study where it's like, oh, there are unintuitive consequences to our actions. And really what we should be doing is actually probably giving a lot of money to fossil fuel companies, but it should be structured in ways that heavily incentivizes them to use the money to transition energy sources. And it, it, it's also that argument of like, look, like, you know, if you have two people and one of them provides 80% of your reductions, you don't give money to the person who has a model of two. You don't give money to the one who makes 20 of the reductions and says, good job, <laughs> your reductions are low. You talk to the person who was 80 and says, okay, why are your reduction, are your emissions so high? What can we do to reduce them? Like a 10% reduction on that person has a much bigger impact than a, you know, 10% reduction on the other person. So that was interesting. It, like it was, it just made me think of that. It was a, I think it was a recently a Freakonomics episode as well. But it's interesting. It seems like there might be a, an important distinction here between the idea of directing investments to, to green companies, you know, carbon neutral companies, which might well not be a good strategy and specifically 
divesting from fossil fuel companies, where the idea is partly about a certain kind of public stigmatization of companies whose policies are actively harmful. So this the point there, it's true, there's a difference between those two points. But the point there is that actually, like I said, raising the cost of capital for those com- companies, basically causing the stigma just leads them to double down. They're like, whatever, we have stigma anyway, and we can't access capital at reasonable rates anymore. So we need to think about making profit in the short term. Over what time horizon does that happen, though? Does that sort of necessarily force them to change it? Because I, I, I can't remember from the, the study. The other examples of stuff where that stigmatization has worked well was like, it's slightly different, but it was like apartheid South Africa, for example, mm-hmm. like boycotts and, and stigmatization. It's true. Did but, force a policy change. But I guess but they, didn't to be say, fair, they didn't have a profit incentive for racism. Yeah, companies are a little bit different. <laughs> but no, it's just interesting. It makes me think of that. I can find you the time horizon that can't say off the top of my head. Yeah, no, um, we can reference it in the show notes later. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, uh, it's an interesting study. And don't, like I said, it's not to say that like we shouldn't, it's still like, I think that in unison, the withdrawal of easy or public capital and the provision of capital coupled with necessary change mm. is probably the, um, you know, restructuring your board, et cetera. Uh, activist investors is the thing that would make it interesting. Yeah, I think that's the, it seems like the other question is how effective investor activism is. If, you, if we thought investor activism was going to be effective, that might well be a good strategy. I'm just not sure how much difference that's made at companies like, you know, Exxon and, and BP. Very interesting. Let's zoom back to the question of justice as a whole. How do you sort of personally or how, how do you recommend uh, that people balance this sort of question about railing against injustice, however powerful or powerless you are. Can you please just say rage against the machine? <laughs> Raging against the machine. <laughs> Why do you keep mislabeling it, Jake? You're embarrassing yourself. Railing against injustice. Uh, with, with this sense of like uh, overwhelm that potentially accompanies it. How do you sort of view those two issues? I do think that's a challenge. I mean, that's one of the reasons why injustice is on the list of chapters. It's b- both because it involves hardship for others and because it's a challenge to face up honestly to the injustice of the world, to sort of take in how much suffering and how much injustice there is. The two things I would say are, one is, I've touched on already, is that taking action even on a small scale in collectives is the kind of thing that makes a difference. And it's also the kind of thing that makes a difference to how you feel. So that's a kind of practical advice about how to emotionally cope, but also how to make some kind of difference. And the diff- you know, the, con- the biggest contrast is the contrast between doing nothing and doing something. Then when if you're doing something, there's this sense of falling short, that the scale of injustice is overwhelming. And one thing I find reassuring, but this may be, this, this is sort of temperamental partly, is that recognizing the inevitability of the sense of falling short is, I think, consoling. So I talk to people, I'm, you know, I'm a philosophy professor who does a little bit of climate stuff on the side. I have friends who have devoted their lives to climate activism who also feel like I should be doing more. I'm falling short. They feel the same sense of inadequacy. And there's something reassuring, I think, about the recognition that it's a feature, not a bug. Like this, this in conditions of injustice, the sense that one can't do enough is more or less inevitable and that it's just a, a kind of part of the condition of of life that one feels that way, not a sign, you know, that will be true even if you did much more. So that's not a reason not to do more, but it's a reason not to think this is some kind of escapable aspect of our condition. That doesn't make the feeling go away, but I think it's part of reconciling oneself to it. 
I love that expression. It's a feature, not a bug. It's such a funny way of looking at it. So if I've summarized that correctly, you're kind of saying this inevitability that you always feel like you could do more is actually in some respects part of what you're saying about learning to live with reality and face reality as it is that that's a feeling that you kind of need to learn to live with and, and whatever issue of injustice you're tackling, there may always be that sort of sense of you could always do more it recalls to me the end of schindler's list not to sort of spoil that although it's a classic but where he's sort of saying i could have saved more people i could have done more even even having done loads already not watched that yet (laughs) (laughs) ruined it (laughs) ruined it yeah no i think that's right it's a a sign that you're getting something right in a way it relates to what i say in another chapter of the book about grief that the pain of grief is not something to wish away. It's a sign that you're taking in a reality that is to which this is an apt response. That doesn't mean it's okay to grieve forever. It may mean that you want to try to figure out how to go on productively despite grief, but but you're not making a mistake. To not feel any grief would actually be a problem. Yeah, you'd be missing something if you just if you didn't respond in this way. And the same thing is true, I think, of the kind of grief we feel about injustice. We'd be missing something if we didn't take that in, or if the grief we feel or the the shame we feel about our own falling short, we'd be missing something if we didn't recognize those limitations. And again, this this connects with the thought that sometimes railing against things you can't change is a function of taking in reality. It's almost part of the human condition. Yeah, no, exactly. One thing I think you had mentioned as a possible thing to talk about was the sort of difference between my way of thinking about this and Stoicism. And I think this is a place where that really comes out. Stoicism is very much concerned with how to deal with adversity. But the Stoic thought really, at least in its modern incarnation, has to do with detaching completely from what you can't control. And so railing against what you can't control is anathema to the Stoics. Whereas I think sometimes you're just not facing up to reality if you don't rail against injustice or suffering even when you can't control it. But in this case, would you be, in the case of something like activism, is it fair to describe it as railing against something you can't control? Or is it railing against something that's very, very, very hard to change? Whereas, for example, if you don't have legs, railing against that is truly pointless. I think there's both. I mean, I think, you know, feeling furious that governments didn't act on this 20 years ago is something that if you're not furious about that, I think you're really missing something about the history of people's understanding of climate change when activists and politicians were aware that something needed to be done. And that's something we can't control. We can't change the past. So I think there are aspects of this that are genuinely uncontrollable. It's true that going forward, there are things we can do and we can make a difference, however, you know, to some degree or other. One thing that drives me mad is that there's a very real world in which There's different problems, but climate change kind of doesn't exist. Mm. And it's largely a world where Chernobyl doesn't happen. Yeah, or or nuclear weapons weren't such a threat. Yeah, that that everyone is just scared of the word nuclear. Like, I mean, it has its own problems, but, you know, at least least climate change isn't one of them. That would have made a huge difference if Al Gore had been elected. Who knows? That could have been absolutely transformative. Bloody hanging chads. (laughs) Hanging chads. Yeah, yeah. that was an astonishing moment in history that on the slimmest of margins or slimmest of reasons, one of the public figures who was most vocal about climate change earliest almost was president. So yeah, you look back and it's very hard not to feel a certain kind of rage about these things. Imagine one day, you know, the, the human race, all of us are ended and we're up there having a convo with God and God, you know, we're like, so why, why did it happen? He says, well... George Bush became president, so. (laughs) Junior. Uh, It all came down to that. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a parallel universe somewhere. We probably need to wrap up soon, just just conscious of the time. But Kieran, are there any sort of closing thoughts you'd you'd like to give 
us and our listeners on this discussion of justice and meaning more widely? No, I think we've covered a lot of what's in the book. I mean, I know there were, there were other things that we could have talked about that maybe it's worth sort of teasing. So, I mean, one is that I do think there's a question about why I think justice is so central. And there, I think one thing to clarify is that it's not that I think an individual can't lead a meaningful life without being devoted to justice. It's really the meaning of life, capital M, capital L, that I think depends on justice. And that's because I think without, if we're looking at human history and asking, how should we feel about it? I think if it contains lots of good things, but is profoundly unjust, it's very hard not to think we should recoil from that. Whereas if there's progress towards justice, there may be more we want. That may not be everything, but at least we can accept or reconcile ourselves to how human history goes. So I think it's really with that, the question of how we should feel about the meaning of life, life, the universe, and everything, or human life as a whole, that justice plays this central role. I think it, it answers to a certain kind of spiritual need to come to terms with human life in a secular way that religious stories also try to allow us to do. Nice. Kieran, it's been a pleasure having you. As a closing question, were there any philosophers' work that you particularly admired or any that inspired you to become a philosopher yourself? So there were two different answers to that. So one philosopher whose work I really admire is the philosopher Frank Ramsey, who was also an economist who actually worked on temporal discounting and issues relevant to the economics of climate change. But he died when he was 26. He was this extraordinary prodigy who translated Wittgenstein's Tractatus, did revolutionary work in mathematics, economics, and philosophy. And he's someone whose work I think is astonishing. And that's one of the great what-ifs in philosophy is what if Frank Ramsey had lived another 50 years to rival Wittgenstein? It would have been a completely different history of 20th century philosophy. The other person I always mention in this context is Iris Murdoch, the mm. novelist who's also a philosopher. And she's someone who I think really has a vision for how to reshape philosophy so that ideas of attentive description are more central to it as opposed to sort of abstract theory. And I think that kind of attentive description as part of philosophical reflection is the model I was I had in mind when I, I wrote Life is Hard. I wanted to give a kind of philosophically attentive description of different kinds of hardship with the hope that by describing them in a way that was revealing, we'd have a better sense of how to feel about them, how to orient ourselves towards them, and hopefully what to do about them, how to change uh, the circumstances or ourselves so so that we can cope with them better. So Murdoch is a huge inspiration for me. And which work of Murdoch's would you most recommend? Well, so she has a short book called The Sovereignty of Good, which is definitely the best thing to recommend. It's a little frustrating in that it's very embedded in her response to what was going on in philosophy in Oxford in the 1950s and 1960s. So you have to get through a little bit of obscurity in the first 20 pages where she's talking about people you've never heard of and alluding to, to you know, what's happening in Oxford at a time when you probably have no idea what was happening in Oxford. But once you really get into it, I think it's a very inspiring and, and moving book. Amazing. Fantastic. It has been a real pleasure chatting to you. Hopefully we weren't too annoying. Um, so, Well, hardship is part of life. So, you know, <laughs> the perfect, the perfect answer. That is the, the man who can put up with anything. <laughs> but thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, yes, Kieran. Very uh, grateful for your time. Everybody, please do check out Kieran online. If you're interested in the book, I'm sure that you can just Google it and it'll come up uh, Amazon or maybe his own website. Yeah, I think on that note, let's wrap up. Kieran, thank you again for being with us. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate it. And listeners, until next time, we hope you enjoyed this one. Don't forget, review, share with people, check out Kieran online. Thanks, guys.